Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our discussion, Beyond Resilience, Making Music Docs That Aren't One Note. I am your moderator, your humbled moderator this afternoon, Fredera Hadley. I'm an ethnomusicologist and writer, and we're going to work and introduce you to each of our esteemed panelists um, by way of their bio and a clip of their work so we can all kind of ground ourselves in the room together. Um, making sure I have my notes here. Uh, let me just say who we have on the stage and then I'll do that. We have Stanley Nelson. We have Sabah. I always just call you by your first name. Folayan. Folayan. Sabah Folayan. And Isabel Castro. So we're going to start by watching a clip um, for the new documentary, Beyond Resilience. If I don't know if you want to say anything about it before we watch it, or we just want to play the clip. Let it go. That feels like the perfect overture for our conversation today, because in the spirit of that, we want to have real conversations about the diversity that these films, each of these stories, each of these filmmakers bring to our canon of music um, documentaries and how they maintain the complexity of the people and the stories told within them. So with that, we're going to start with Stanley Nelson's documentary, Birth of the Cool. And Stanley Nelson is today's leading documentarian of the African-American experience. His films combine compelling narratives with rich historical detail to shine new lights on the underexplored American past. Awards received over the course of his career include a MacArthur Genius Fellowship, five Primetime Emmy Awards, and Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Emmy, Emmys and IDA. In 2013, Nelson received the National Medal in the Humanities from President Obama. In 2019, Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool was nominated by the Grammys for Best Music Film and went on to win two Emmy Awards at the 42nd Annual News and Documentary Emmy Awards um, ceremony. So, Stanley, if you would like to share with us before we watch this clip from Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool. Yeah, thank, thanks so much, everybody, for being here. Um, so we're going to watch a little clip from, from Miles. Um, so this comes about 20 minutes into the film. Uh, Miles has already played with Charlie Parker at age 18. Um, he gets into drugs um, and hits bottom and then kind of comes off off the drugs and um, plays this magnificent piece at uh, the Newport Jazz Festival. Um, from the very beginning, one of the things we wanted to do is, is to um, have a section in the film where we talked about Miles's ballads. And, and this is a section... Uh, of the film where uh, we talk about Miles's ballads. Also, and we can talk about this more, I think one of the challenges of music films is how how do you incorporate the music? How do you show the music? How do you, you know, you can't just stop the film, you know, five or six, ten times and play a three-minute clip of music. So how do you incorporate the music, you know, you know into the film? And so um, I think this section is an example of, you know, how we did it for Miles. Keep your questions and your thoughts in mind. We're definitely going to have time for Q&A and unpack each story a bit more. But I want to make sure that um, we get to all see a little bit of each film. So we're going to go to Sabah 
and look at me story on XXX Tentacion, which is similar to the Miles Davis documentary. In my mind, men with incredibly complex lives and stories that need to be told. And so, would you mind sharing a little bit about the film and setting up the clip we'll watch? Yes, um, this clip you're about to see is um, a moment in the film where I transition between the two parallel stories, the story of his intimate partner who um, he allegedly abused very severely and his own story and his rise to fame. And for me, it was really important going into making this film that his intimate partner be represented. Um, Obviously, well, I am a woman and I am someone who feels very strongly about supporting and believing survivors and assuming that, you know, they're coming forward as an act of courage and an act of honesty and for me doing my background research, it was clear going in that she was telling the truth. And I came to her family and I was like, I understand her to be telling the truth. And this film will have to make that clear um, in order for me to be a part of it. And so I was really honored that they were open to that. But in the execution, it became a little different because the question is always, well, why aren't you just focused on the music? Why is it about the music? The fans, you know, there's a huge fan base. I think when you're making music documentaries, especially about people with the legacy, there's kind of this voice of the fans and you have this voice in your mind of what people want to hear, what people want to know. Will they be disappointed? Will they be happy? And you kind of have to tune that out. But you also have to respect that that attention is there. And so this was a moment and a transition that I found um, that I felt was a really strong way to sort of remind people that it was deeper than just the story of the craft. Okay. Um, yes, got it. Thank you. You want to say? Yeah. Oh, this was actually a different clip than what I um, expected to play. So <laughs> this is really go cool with the introduction that I made. Um, but I'm happy to share. <laughs> and it's streaming on Hulu. It is streaming on Hulu. Yeah. And Miles Davis' Birth of the Cool is streaming on Netflix. Netflix, and we're going to get to Miha in a second. I realized I was so excited thinking about the connections. I forgot to read your bio. I'm going to do that because I want to make sure everybody knows how fantastic you fantastic you are. Um, through screenwriting, filmmaking, and public speaking, Sabah Falayan um, levels an optimistic yet unflinching gaze on the urgent questions of our time. Sabah made her directorial, directorial debut at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival with a feature-length documentary, Whose Streets? Nominated for Peabody, Critics' Choice, Gotham, and NAACP Awards, the film chronicles the experiences of activists living in Ferguson, Missouri, when Michael Brown Jr. was killed. In 2021, Sabah wrote the series finale of HBO's Betty, a critically acclaimed comedy series about a crew of young female skateboarders in New York City. Her second feature documentary, Look at Me, XXX Tentacion premiered right here at South by Southwest last year, 2022, and as we said, is now streaming on Hulu. So now we all are on one accord about her dopeness. And last but certainly not least, we have Isabel Castro, who is a four-time Emmy-nominated Mexican-American filmmaker who combines a practice in journalism and art to tell stories about immigration, civil rights, and identity. Award-winning Mija had its world premiere at Sundance Film Festival in 2022 and is her first feature film. It was acquired by Disney Original Documentaries and is in development for a scripted series at FX Networks. Would you like to share with us about Miha? Yeah, so uh, we're going to watch a clip from the film. Um, I think I chose this clip 
because of a couple of reasons. One is I was looking forward to, I'm looking forward to talking about um, style and kind of like uh, the artistic approach to telling this film. Um, I feel like this is a good, rep- this clip is a good representation of it. Um, and I also, you know, in learning how, because this is my first music documentary, I come from a background of doing immigration and civil rights reporting. And as I was trying to understand the genre, I think one of the things that I gravitated to was like seeing people make music um, and the process of like kind of um, uh, demystifying like w- uh, the process of making a song and making a music video. Um, and so this is kind of an excerpt of that uh, of that goal. Um, Isabel, you kind of pointed us um, in this direction in your remarks, but this is a question to everyone. Um, what attracted you to the stories that you ended up telling in each one of these documentaries and how did that inform your how you chose to tell the story stylistically in terms of narrative, all of those kinds of things? How were that how was that connected for you? <laughs> My panelists are <laughs> like nudging me along. Um, I'll I'll kick it off. I mean, um so as I mentioned, like I had come from immigration reporting, uh, civil rights reporting, been on the ground for the last five plus years. And I was really frustrated that um, I felt like there was a limit to uh, the, the kinds of stories that I was telling about families separated at the border, about, um, you know, people being charged in the desert for giving water to migrants in the, uh, that were crossing. Um, I just, you know, I was getting them on big outlets and then there was always like a limit to how people engage with these kinds of stories. And by that, I mean, like, um, I just, I felt like sometimes I just felt like I was like speaking to the same people over and over again. Um, and so with this film, I, I said, okay, I want to do a a film about family separation. I want to do a film about that explores the intergenerational trauma of immigration policies in the United States. But how can I do that in a way that might appeal to a different audience that might take a completely unexpected stylistic approach? Um, And so, yeah, I I chose this clip because it's so colorful and it draws inspiration from euphoria and it's meant to um, really kind of change the visual palette and the stylistic approach to how immigration stories are told. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, when I found these protagonists, I felt like they were the perfect um, women to tell this story. And that's why I took that particular approach to doing it. Um, you know, I, I, well, Miles Davis is arguably the greatest jazz musician of all times. He's arguably the greatest musician of any genre of the 20th century. Um, you know, Kind of Blue is the largest selling jazz album of all times. I have no doubt that jazz, Kind of Blue will be listened to 100 years from now. If you don't know Kind of Blue, listen to it. You'll like it. <laughs> the, you know, um, and, and Miles Davis is a complicated character, and that, that was really um, what really interested me, um, that Miles Davis... You know, as you saw, and it never entered my mind that the tune that that played in in the clip, you know, he made incredibly beautiful music, but uh, he was a real shit, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
and uh you know abusive to women uh, used drugs and all those things and and um he's just an interesting character and uh so that's kind of why you know i, I went to miles and and um i wanted to make a, f a music film i really wanted to make a music film and you know kind of what better character than, than miles davis if you you know want to make a music film yeah, um, for me, this is a story that I was approached with by um, Fader Films and his estate, his manager and his mother, and they were looking for a director. And um, I think, you know, up to this point in my career, I've had a sort of unique experience. I came from a pre-med background, with a lot of experience in mental health and working with people who were incarcerated or institutionalized with mental health challenges. At one point, I was answering, you know, the hotline in New York City for families and people who were having mental health emergencies. So I was really steeped in that. And when I made my first documentary, it actually started out as a public health report that I was going to do, sort of unsanctioned and independently, which, you know, it was just something to make myself busy when I went out to Ferguson and evolved into a documentary through, you know, in large part, the Firelight Lab, where I learned the ropes of the industry and just got a, you know, creative space and kind of felt like I could identify as a filmmaker. Um, and so it was an invitation that kind of called on a lot of my past experience to look at this person who had mental health challenges, who was embroiled in the criminal justice system, and tr try to make more sense of it than just, you know, look how good his music was or look how crazy the situation was. Try to actually draw some threads. Um, so it felt like a great opportunity to use the skills that I had built and the skills that I was continuing to build as a storyteller. Um, I was drawn to the challenge of it, the challenge of being honest about this person, uh, being honest with myself about the fact that many of the men who I've loved, my family, my partners, have been very problematic. And so how do we grapple with that, you know, face to face rather than trying to push it away and push it into some hashtag or some kind of outer space? And so... You know, I like a challenge. I tend to do things the hard way, and this <laughs> this was definitely that. I'm struck in each documentary. Um, they do a really powerful job of telling a person's story, or in your case, Isabel, two people's story, connected to these larger concerns and issues without losing sight of the person against the backdrop of racism in Miles Davis's case and drug addiction and abuse and all these things, it doesn't flatten their humanity. It allows them to still, and it doesn't ask the audience to make a judgment really about them, who they are, or the young women. They're not just the daughters of undocumented people. They are their full selves. And I love the choices you make to really um, make this a first-person intimate narrative in that way. So I wondered if you could talk about how you approach that, or is that something you're even thinking consciously about during the filmmaking, or how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that one of the things with music docs for me, you know, is that, you know, what what's the film really about? You know, and that's kind of the thing that, that I'm searching for. You know, it's not, it's not just about the music. And, you know, I, I think that, that that's what makes, you know, music docs that are really good, you know, stand out, you know. So, we're, you know, I'm looking for like, okay, so, you know, here's this great music, and but what is it also about? And, and one of the great things about music docs is that, you know, it's like sports docs. You know, you can always go to 
the sport, you know, like we did a film on Michael Vick and you can always go to Michael Vick, you know, running for a touchdown, you know, when, when things got a little slow. <laughs> and with with music docs, you know, you got the music to work with. So you have this, you know, great bass, but also kind of what what is it about? And it doesn't matter if if you see it as an audience and you say, oh, that film is about that, you know, or it's about these two or three things. It it doesn't matter if, if it kind of doesn't sink into you that way, you know, as long as kind of I know... <laughs> you know, making the film, what it's about, that it's about something more than just, you know, he could play, he could string together a bunch of great notes, and you know, wasn't it nice? I mean, for me, that was a central question, and I talked with my editor and my team early on about the fact that this was a coming-of-age story about a young man who was a musician, and so we were really looking at it through how is he working towards an identity as a man, um, and how is the interplay between himself and his audience and his craft and his, you know, actions and misbehaviors playing into that kind of process? Because I felt like, you know, he's a, a symbol and an emblem of his generation. And all of these young people are looking for a way to make sense of the world that they've inherited. And we all know that it's moved much more quickly than we've been able to really process. So I felt like I owed it to those kids to sort of try to look at this as a process and try to honor the fact that this was a young man who was struggling with inheriting a really, really wild, violent, traumatic situation and reflected those behaviors and then grappled with them. And I think what made it possible for me to engage in humanizing him was that he was in that struggle. And it doesn't excuse anything that he did, but he was very much trying and confronting. And I think that's a challenge that he gave to all of us. We may not behave to the extreme levels that he did, but we all have that responsibility to constantly be grappling with the darker parts of us, the hurt parts of us, et cetera. So um, it was challenging. Every day I was a little nauseous. Like, am I making this terrible person into a hero? And, and I think at a certain point, my editor and I had a conversation. It was like, it's not about us being comfortable. We shouldn't be comfortable. We shouldn't land. We shouldn't come to some strong, polarized conclusion. We should stay in this uncomfortable, uncertain, gray area because that's the essence of what this human experience really is at the end of the day. I love what you said about, I didn't think about that consciously, consciously but it makes perfect sense as a coming-of-age story because he was so young when he was killed. He was 20, 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I saw a lot of parallels with like Tupac because I remember... I'm old enough that that was, like, devastating to us. Um, But also, I finished the film feeling legitimate grief. I didn't know a whole lot about him. Like, when he was alive, I heard things or whatever. whatever. I felt real grief that his life ended the way that it did in that moment of really grappling and trying to find another way. Oh. Yeah, I mean, one of my biggest goals, um, and it's kind of, I'm kind of expanding on what I was talking about before in terms of like trying to tell a different kind of immigration story is that I really wanted to avoid a sense of victimization. Like I think that um, even in my own work, like, you know, I was, I have been telling stories about folks that have suffered like incredible marginalization and injustice. And, um, and for this, I really wanted to, really deliberately 
um, avoid that kind of uh, approach in telling their stories. I really wanted to make them to show how much agency they had. And in spite of all these government policies, um, they, you know, show the agency that they have as children of immigrants, but also that their families have. And so that was one way that I really tried to, quote unquote, like not flatten their experiences to being one of just grief. Um, I, I really wanted to focus the film on the entire, like a very complicated and nuanced um, range of emotions, including unexpected things like guilt um, or um, resentment. Um, and um, and I feel like in, in doing so, it, that that was the goal in ter- terms of trying to complicate them. Yeah, they come through as actual humans um, and not just sort of these projected ideas of what it must be to be a young American of undocumented parents. It must be this way. But the beauty and the whimsicalness, whimsy, that's the right word, <laughs> that you that you uh, bring to the film, I, I, I feel like in a lot of ways helps us see them even more clearly, if that makes sense, right? Um, and then going back to Birth of the Cool, Miles Davis, you know, he's he has an autobiography. People have written books about him. There's so much out there about him, and yet you found ways to make us hear him anew in the story. And and were there challenges with someone who's been talked about so much who is? If people who don't know anything about jazz know who Miles Davis is, is that a, its own kind of challenge in finding your way in, or did you just kind of come to it with your own ideas? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think it was, it was that hard, you know, because I, I don't think, that many people actually read his autobiography. I mean, it, it might have even been a bestseller, but that's, you know, the film just reaches so many more people, you know, um, than, than, than books at this point, you know, maybe sad to say. But I, I think that, that one of the things, you know, that, that um, really is, was really important to us is that one of the first things we did was met with his family that runs the estate, you know, and and said, you know, okay. And it was hard, you know, because we... We go into a room and they're they're all sitting there staring at at me and like oh you want to make a film about Miles huh and and yeah and I said you know yeah I want to make a film warts and all you know and that's what I want to do and and in in Miles's case it was a little easier than some people because he had already written an autobiography and he had talked about drug use and his abuse of women and things like that and. And I said, you know, we can't avoid that. It's out there in the world. So that's the film we've we've got to make, you know, or else we'll we'll really get uh, put under thrown under the bus if we if we ignore that stuff. Um, and that helped us all all the way through. Um, but then, you know, I mean, you're always looking for new material and different kind of things. And you know, we were interviewing this guy who was a friend of his, kind of a pre-interview. And um, he said, you know, and he had taken these pictures of Miles, these still pictures, and, you know, and he said, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I went out and Miles said to me, you know, you know hey, you know, you, you can take some movies if you want. And so I went out and bought a movie camera and I took a course at UCLA on, on filmmaking and, and I shot this film on Miles. And we're like, oh, yeah, well, where is it? He said, it's in my basement. You know, I'm going to go get it. <laughs> <laughs> and he went down in his basement and got these two huge rolls of 16 millimeter film that he shot, and uh, and it start he, he shot a, f- a film that Miles loved boxing, 
and he shot some of the film was of Miles kind of, you know, boxing, shadow boxing, you know, um, and that's kind of how we start the film and, uh, with his, uh, film, uh, some of his film, we, we end the film with, with some of his film and Miles walking on the beach and different things of Miles that you, that you've never seen and nobody ever saw before. So, you know, it, it's just a matter of, of, you know, kind of research and then, you know, getting lucky and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that, I think, you know, it was kind of a metaphor that, you know, Miles is shadow boxing and, and, you know, he had this really, you know, kind of personality that, that he was like fighting the fighting with the world all the time. And, and, um, uh, so it, it became like a, a gem that, that we found. Wow. That's a great get, a great find that you just don't know until you're talking to people and people are like, oh yeah, I do have this thing. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? <laughs> And sometimes you just got to ask the question in like three or four or five different ways, you know, you know, you know uh, so you just keep saying, uh, well, you know, um, at, at one point I was doing this other film and this guy, you know, um, he said, you know, he said he had, he had shot this film on um, People's Temple and Jim Jones and, and he said he gave it away. You know, he gave the film away to these filmmakers. He was going to try to get it back. And we worked for, with him for like six months. Do you have the film? Do you have the film? Do you have the film? He's like, no, I can't get it back. The couple I gave it to, you know, they're getting a divorce and they can't. Da, da, da. And I said, yeah. And I said, okay, today's the last day because we got to finish the film. Do you have it? You know, can, did you get the film? He said, no, but you know, I made a VHS copy. Do you want that? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes just asking the question in the right way. <laughs> so, Val, you mentioned something earlier. Like, this was a story that came to you. They were looking for a director, and his estate was involved in that. Um, can you talk about just what that adds? Because there's a scene in the film that I find very striking where it's like a panel interview with the manager, his mom, his aunt, I think another one of his collaborators. And it's about the accountability um, about domestic abuse. And, like, I feel like that's a moment that is very, and we hear you off camera asking questions, and it feels like a moment that is very honest um, and that we don't often get to see unfold in that kind of way in a music documentary, one that a family may shy away from, especially if their loved one is no longer here. So can you talk a little bit about, they obviously wanted his story told, but like the process of how you were able to work with to tell a story like this? Yeah. um, That was probably the most challenging part of the process. And for me, I was trying to hold several things, you know, my reputation and the responsibility that I feel I have to the public Um, and then the fact that this is a family who's grieving a loss, and then the fact that I am a feminist and that I am aware of, you know, the gender paradigm that we live in and that I'm pushing against that. Um, and so it was about being transparent from the very, very beginning. Um, he was able to build himself and fashion himself into a celebrity using social media. So that savvy comes from somewhere. And all the people around him were savvy. His mother was very savvy. So there was no kind of sugarcoating of anything. There was She was very, very aware. And even if she didn't know the filmmaking process, she understood enough about business and about communication and self-representation that I had to kind of just come to her as an equal and be really clear, I had to be really clear with Hulu that, you know, this was a collaborator. This is a black Jamaican mother 
about her son. You know, there's not going to be a world where I can kind of take this film and do what I want with it and bring it back. We have to walk hand in hand through this accountability process. And so this was one of the last things that we shot, that the scene that you're referring to. And I had shown them cuts before. I'd shown Geneva cuts. We had negotiated scenes and framing. Um, there had been another scene around accountability that wasn't as direct. It wasn't multiple people. It was just sort of like a more circumstantial confrontation of it. And they ended up being very uncomfortable with that. And they were uncomfortable with a number of things that were in certain cuts. And so I was like, if you want me to remove these things, you have to stand in this space of accountability and confront it directly as his only representatives. But this will be confronted. You know what I mean? Like, we're not going to be able to skip over it. So how should we do this? And I created a space where there was authentic collaboration. You know, for my editor and I, it was like, the worst thing that we're aware of has to be in the film. No one will be able to say that we didn't say the worst thing. You know what I mean? We're not going to sugarcoat it. But... There's only so much that people can take of being re-traumatized. It's not, I don't think that it's of the utmost importance that we relive every negative and dark aspect of a person's experience. So we found that balance together really, really worked to earn that trust, to be able to have that conversation on camera. And another thing that I had to remember, which was very comfortable, uncomfortable, was that it's not about me. It's not about me signaling to the world just how militant I am, how righteous I am, how virtuous I am, where I stand. Once I've taken on the responsibility to tell this story, it's about this story. And so to I had to be really, really centered in a humble place to ask those questions in a way where they felt safe enough to answer those questions on camera. Um, so I think, yeah, that's definitely one of the... the things that I'm most proud of that I was able to accomplish that accountability with consent and with transparency together with them as opposed to having to sort of extract it or, or use the power dynamics that are really embedded in documentary mm -hmm. filmmaking. You know, there was a, another way that I could have gone about that and really applied pressure, but I, I did believe that it was possible and I'm happy that they rose to the occasion. I love how you talk about working collaboratively with this Jamaican-American woman, mother who has lost her child. Um, and I'm glad you we get to hear you ask the questions because um, it doesn't, you don't sound at all accusatory or judgmental, but just like sort of genuinely wondering, like, how can there be accountability if there's no admission? Like, how do, how do, the, how do those things work? And watching them think through what you're asking in real time demonstrates that there is trust there. Like, they don't, they don't feel, their posture isn't one where they feel attacked or confronted, but it is um, a way to really deal with that central issue in the film. Yeah, and I was hoping really, you know, from the space of a mental health practitioner to model a way of entering into conversations about accountability. I think we can do a lot better collectively, like there's being right and then there's moving forward. Mm. And I think that that's where a lot of us collectively are stuck. We know that we're right. We know that abuse is a problem. We know that, you know, gender-based violence is a problem, but how do we move forward? Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like I had to find that in myself um, if this was going to be a productive piece of work. Thank you. And Isabel, thinking about Miha and your shift from being not that you're not still a journalist, of course you are, but like moving into documentary filmmaking as well. 
What do you see as sort of the possibilities of being able to expand how we think about immigrate immigrants, not just immigration, but people? And where do you feel we are in telling these stories in the canon of music music documentaries now? Um, first of all, I just I I loved what you were just saying, and I just want to acknowledge that I, it's something that I like as I learn. Like I'm still so so very much in kind of a stage of learning. Um, I'm learning how to navigate those relationships, um, and it's it's extremely challenging. Um, so I'm glad we're having a conversation about it. But um, separately, to answer your question, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that. So I I felt really disillusioned with by journalism. I mean, just I mean to back up even further, like I kind of accidentally fell into journalism. Um, it felt like a pragmatic interpretation of what I love to do, which is go out into the world and meet people and have a camera. I mean, it feels like such a gift. Like I really adore what this you know what we do. Um, and journalism just felt like a kind of like responsible interpretation of that. Like I'm gonna have a job, um, and um, and then I, you know, I, I I just I really value the function of journalism. I think it's like crucial to exposing truths and holding people accountable. Um, but I think that particularly under the Trump administration, I just you know I I felt a lot of conflict in terms of the the um, the role of like it just I I just was kind of being exposed to a lot of tra trauma, a lot of stories that in involved a lot of trauma, and I felt so fr like I I was coming at it from a place of a lot of subjectivity and what felt like activism, um, and it journalism didn't feel like the right place to feel so angry. Um, I I like wanted to interpret the world in a more subjective view, like I didn't want to have to go interview person A and person B because in in my view of what was happening, there was, you know, when, like, kids were being separated from their families at the border, it just it felt so kind of like the, the truth, as I understood it, felt so clear um, internally. And it, it, it was really, there was a lot of dissonance between how I felt and the process of journalism and what I was being asked to do in order to report on these things. And so I kind of, you know, tapped into, um, I, I tried to translate some of the things that I learned from journalism, you know, like the, some of the processes, some of the rules, some of these things that in some ways exist to protect stories, to protect storytellers, to protect um, participants in in telling a story, um, but try to carry over some of those things and then also try to inject a lot more subjectivity into the way that I was telling the story. And by that, I mean like having a much more subjective style and view and point of view. Um, I wanted the, f the film to feel like it had a really particular perspective, um, stylistically, tonally, um, and so, anyway, I don't know if this answers your question. I think I, I, this is coming up a lot. I think um, as you know, documentary becomes more and more commercial mm -hmm. and starts to almost have a different function than journalism. Um, it's like you know, we it it 
its role, you know, its its purpose in some ways is to entertain. Um, and I feel like, uh, but it has historically been rooted in a journalistic practice. And I think that we're coming up against a lot of friction between um, those two different set of expectations. And, I mean, I could talk about this forever and ever, but, um, uh, and I won't, but I... <laughs> But I do think like these questions are really important to really, uh, like really deconstruct and understand how how we translate journalism, how we translate journalistic practice, um, and how we also differentiate it within uh, within documentary filmmaking too. Um, thank you for that. And we're going to get ready for questions. Um, so please, if you have them, we have two microphones set up. And I was just thinking about. Um, the story that you tell with Doris and Jack's hop, um, there are points of it that could easily be seized upon and made sensational, right? And and become like the story themselves. I'm thinking about watching Doris drive to Mexico to, I think it's Thanksgiving, to bring her brother food from the family. Like people could seize on that and make that like the overarching thing where the way you present it it's a part of the reality of their life that her older brother has been deported and they, they her, because her parents are undocumented, they can't go see him. And this is just the way that they found to cope. It's a part of life as opposed to the singular story of her life, right? Um, and I feel like those are the kinds of choices and impressions that you allow us to hold in, in, our, in our minds. So thank you. Do we have questions? Yes. hear me okay so are you thinking about turning this into a feature film i mean either one of the your stories i mean so it sounds like isabel's in development on a fiction film um if you mean narrative or fiction either uh, i mean but from what you just did in your documentaries does that ever inspire you to maybe do a a feature film you know a docudrama or something like that hmm. i have to think on that (laughs) it seems like it would be I, so I mean, for me, and and I'm so Miha itself was a feature film, but I think that um, in terms of translating into like fiction into narrative or like extrapolating anything from these stories, there's always that temptation because like you fall in love with this story, like you really. I always describe it as like you you kind of marry your story for a little while, like you really like you you just. You live and breathe the story, um, and at some point you just decide to stop. Like the film never, the filmmaking process like never fully stops. Like one day you just get into a festival and you say, "We need to deliver this in two weeks," and that's it. <laughs> and then you like get up from the office and you're like, "Well, I guess my film is done." But the film, like the pro, like the story doesn't stop. That's what's weird about documentary. Like in Miha particularly, like the. F- the stories have completely shifted and changed since we started filming, and that's created some problems. It's created some tensions, and it's also kind of, from my perspective, I'm like, oh, I mean, this this feels like a whole other story, you know? Um, so I don't know if that answers your your question, well, but... I say it because I'm a, I'm a screenwriter, and I'm also a filmmaker, and I'm writing... I like to write things that are true, so I'm working on a story from... Um, the 1940s that really happened about a little girl who ends up desegregating a Hispanic school and she becomes a present, her and her mother. But it's from the truth, and it's a lot of stories that I've talked to people, over 400 people, about the episode. 
So I'm going back. I'm going the other way. It's not a documentary, but it's more of a narrative film. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the exact opposite. When, I, when I'm finished <laughs> with a film, I'm through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I would say I feel like I get married to my collaborators, but I, th- this film in particular, I think both my films have been a bit of a war zone for me. <laughs> more like a solitary confinement than a marriage. Um, so, but yeah, I'm looking forward to what I love about your film and the pieces I've seen so far is just the beauty. Like you can see that you loved that film. You can feel the love that's there. And I hope I get an opportunity to tell a story that I can love and make sparkly. (laughs) Keep it real. (laughs) If you have questions, feel free to come to the mic. Hello, my name's Carl. Um, I'm currently working on a doc that kind of features a group from the late 70s and early 80s. And they're still active, which is awesome. Um, But you kind of touched on it a little bit. Like, I think with music docs, you know, a lot of the stories are about stuff that's happened in the past, if not farther in the past. And a lot of the artists are no longer with us that the docs end up being made about. And so you touched on the idea of finding the current relevant storyline within this type of format where maybe their earlier years were where the height of their fame and, you know, um, visibility happened. But now you're years later telling the story and trying to find the current narrative to go along with it to kind of bring it all together. Do you, the balance between knowing it going into it and discovering it as it happens, and how do you find that kind of current element within a story that primarily happened in the past, essentially? Um, I mean, I, I think I think it's a, a bit of both, you know. I mean, for me, with with Miles, you know, so this, the, the section that you saw, we knew that we wanted to talk about Miles's ballads, and so that we, we interviewed people about Miles's ballads. Now, did we know what song we were going to use? No. And did we know that the sequence was going to be like that, you know, um, with those kind of beautiful stills back and forth? No, but we but we knew that we wanted a a sequence about ballads. So I think you know that that some of it you know, some of it you find out. The great thing about making docs, you know, either uh, present day docs or historical docs, is is the stuff that you find while you, while you're while you're going. And it's not just physical stuff like the guy, who, you know, had the films in his basement. It's it's the story, you know, like what is what is the the story a, as you go. And hopefully, you know, you have room for the story to change. So, do you find yourself like uh, leaning fifty percent on discovering it, and fifty percent you kind of have something in mind, or uh, does it flow I, change I, with every yeah, every shoot? I, probably, I think it changes. You know, but but I mean, you're making the film for a reason. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of stuff that you know, a certain amount that's already there, right? That you know that so that that you're making a, a film for a reason. I mean, one of the things we had to hold on to it with Miles was that, you know, we're making the film because Miles made this beautiful music and made this music, and that we could go down the path of his abuse, we can go down the path of path of his drug abuse, but we but we're we're here because of the music, right? We're he, you know if Miles was just uh, an abuser of women and a drug addict, we wouldn't have been making the movie. So we that's kind of something that we hold on to you can go down this path but you you know you can you have to figure out a way to come back 
and bring the audience back with you so they're not like, wait a minute, this guy, you know, this guy was such a shit. Wait, you know, um, I, I think that's important. We have time, I think, for one last quick question. Um, so I think it's interesting, all these music docs that are coming out where you see the participant is an exec producer on it or, you know, it's in, they're, they're working in concert with the filmmaker, right? Um, you all had to enlist estates or, you know, the, the families. I'm wondering how they um, responded to the final films. Um, you know, we've heard of people dropping out at the last minute and, like, disavowing the film. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious, what was the response? Um, I, I want to say say real quick something I've just been thinking about the whole time. If, if people are, are thinking about music docs, I think one of the things you see, especially from these two docs, I mean, that, that and from Miles, too, you know, is that access is really important. You know, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, we want to make a film so bad and, and they're like, okay, well, you can come to the rehearsal on Tuesday and you can shoot us, you know, at dinner on Friday. But, the, you know, and, and it's not enough. And, 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 and you can see it in the docs, you know. I think that that's really, so it's, access is really important. And, and for a filmmaker, it's hard because you want to make the film and you, and you feel like you don't have a leg to stand on, you know. But with, again, with Miles, we, we, immediately said, you know, we want to make film warts and all. Um, we, we, we want to do this. Um, with Miles, I didn't show the family the film, you know, um, at all. We got in, we got into Sundance, you know, and, uh, and so I, I sent the film out the day before we were leaving to go to Sundance, you know, because I was going to Sundance. I, you know, I, I was like, I, I didn't care what they, what they, what they said. And I didn't want to leave. And I left, I didn't want to leave more room for them to like, you know, like mount a campaign against me and against the film, um, you know, and, and uh, his nephew who kind of runs the estate, you know, who we did a lot of events with, Tells, tells this story where you know I sent it literally sent it to him the night before, and he was and yeah he was in L.A. and I was in New York and he calls me it's like three in the morning, and he says you know he's crying he's oh, Danny the film is so beautiful the film is so great and I was like great click, <laughs> you know um, but you know I I so I, I wanted them you know you want them to you want everybody to like it you know but it's not. It's not totally necessary, hopefully. Like, you don't sign a contract where it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think it's telling even that you framed your question in terms of participants, and I think that language speaks to something that's happening in documentary, which is evolving from a sort of almost anthropological subject observer, you know, this uh, false ideas of having objectivity because you don't have the full context, the relationships to the community that you're... Uh, documenting and moving towards something that honors people's humanity. And for me, it's kind of absurd to imagine, like, I wouldn't let someone just come along and tell a story about my life on their own terms with no input from me. Like, you know what I mean? So to ask that of someone is a little wild. And at the same time, there has to be that boundary of I'm the filmmaker, my reputation is on the line, here are my standards. Um, and for me, and it, and I think it's case by case. In this particular case, both Geneva and his mother 
were the targets of online harassment because of the narrative that was currently circulating. He died in 2018. So these are people who are still processing their grief and women who are, are, are vulnerable and whose vulnerability is going to be impacted by the narrative that I tell. So it was of the utmost important for me that Geneva see this cut well before it came out, give me feedback about how she felt about it. You know, having her blessing was, was for me, was mandatory. Like, I was willing to walk away based on how our interactions and how Hulu and the estate were going to support that part of the process. This had to be, there had to be justice for her to the extent that I could create it through my actions. Um, and then for the family, you know, I wanted I wanted that participation. I wanted that trust. And so I had to give. And so I think it's a give and a take. And it's based off of the situation that you're in and how you protect your reputation in an industry that automatically mistrusts the idea that people should be a part of telling their own stories. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a larger conversation. I think that's a racialized conversation. It's a class conversation. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there are a lot of, of, of layers to that. I mean, it's it, it's I it is such a complicated um, thing to navigate because there is a thin line between um, like censorship essentially and uh, and also making sure that like you're telling you're honoring a story and you're you you're listening to how people want to show themselves show their communities show. Um, represent themselves and so um yeah i mean for me on miha on every film that i've done i've showed the film ahead of time but those conversations are sometimes not easy and there are parts of miha that the family and uh you know participants in the film don't like um and yeah you just you have to make a really you know difficult decision um, and you have to be able to stand by the decision um, and really, ha- like, you know, reason through it. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you all so much. Thank you all for coming.